0: We have been reminded a number of times in this series of a really important statement. And I believe one of the things we really need to walk away with, one of the things that that deeply challenges me and and how I live out my faith and and how I engage with the Lord is this massive statement for me, no Christology equals no anchor. There is a pathway that believers can take which leads to a real and deep knowledge of Jesus. And we are supposed to be in the habit of learning Christ. There is a journey available to us that scratches below the surface of things. Over time, this develops into a growing ability to understand and articulate the work of Jesus in a way that goes beyond cliches and song lyrics. Those things are good to help us remind things. And the old hymns were actually theology for, to help people remember theology and stuff like that. It was, the use of songs is great, but there is also you know, sometimes the scriptural supplement of that. You know, the, the songs supplement something greater, and we've got to remember that. Knowing Jesus in a deeper way is, uh, is more than what we just sort of lightly engage with, but there's depth to be found. The immediate audience of Hebrews hasn't been bothered with any of that. They've been, um, you know, they've they've been drifting. They've been, uh, they should be secure. They should be anchored. But by drifting, we understand that drifting is not by, by nature very good at all. Drifting by very nature doesn't drift. You don't just drift towards something. It's called drifting because you are out of where you should be. When a boat drifts, it's because it's lost the spot it's supposed to stay in. You don't just, you always drop anchor on a boat if you want to remain in the same place. Things don't drift naturally towards something good. Nobody ever drifts into conviction and certainty. If you drift, it will always be away from that. You can't just leave it to the elements. Most of what has been laid out in Hebrews is Christology. And as we read today, we find that we've signed off on the Christology idea and now we're pointed to a way of life that comes out of that. It's a way of life that is the opposite of drifting. It's a way of life that, starts, that addresses our outlook And what we're about to read in today addresses our outlook on faith and outlook on because of who Jesus is, this is how we should be looking at life. It feeds into our behaviour and this passage will also speak into our habits. So, to see all this working, we're going to go part by part of this last half of chapter 10, and I'll stop you every few verses, and we'll look at a few ideas here as we go. So, hopefully, we're all open at Hebrews 10, one way or the other. And we're going to start at verse 19 today, and just read the first few verses, and just keep your thumb in there as we go. Okay, in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Pause. This passage is opening with one of the great therefores of the New Testament. Sometimes the word therefore, I used to get the, the, the joke back, the preacher's joke, you know, when, when someone writes therefore, you know it's therefore. It's one of those old preacher lines. But every now and again, therefore has impact, has power. Therefore means in light of, you know, in, rem- rem- in, in, in thinking about what we've already learnt, in light of what we know, therefore. In this case, it's in light of what has already been said about Christ. In light of who Christ is. In light of what he's done. And he's reminding us here, uh, tearing through the curtain of heaven's most holy place through his death. Sanctifying that place with his own blood. in light of who he is, in light of what he's done, and in light of what we now have, a 24-7 great high priest. In light of all of that, approach the Christian faith with a mindset of complete confidence. Confidence, in this case, has a few ideas attached to it that speak into our faith expression. Often the Greek word used here is translated sometimes in the New Testament as as courage and boldness. And that is certainly truth to that. It's perhaps more accurate to describe its use here as permission to speak freely or to operate in plain sight. Both of those things are works of boldness and courage, but the more narrow, the more pointed version is to speak freely. And we're told about this freedom in the context of a great location. And hopefully we get a good idea of the mindset a Christian is supposed to have out of that. In case we're trying to catch up, or if you haven't heard previous sermons, our author here is calling us, because of the blood of Christ, to come in plain sight before the throne of God, which is the heavenly most holy place, and speak freely and boldly when it comes to who Jesus is, what he has done, and what we have in Him, come front and centre, be seen in plain sight in His presence and speak freely in His presence. That's what confidence is. That's what rights we have in engaging with God. And this mindset then speaks distinctively into our lifestyle of worship. We have this position and out of this position we have the ability to live out something significant for the Lord. That's what we see as we keep reading on. So, I'll move on to the next couple of verses here. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. three times in what we've just read, we see a call to action coming out. And it's a phrase, let us, being used to do that. So in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he's done, in light of what we have in him, and in light of what our mindset should now be, let us, Let us first draw near. Confidence should bring us to this point, but the writer is making it even clearer here. Drawing near is often something we think of as a momentary posture. There's a song about it, you know, I draw near. You know? like, it's almost like we, we create these reference points and these moments and these encounter-based things. And we call that drawing near. Some of us today may have come in to this gathering today and God's presence is clearly here today. And there is a a, a wonderful spirit-led synergy in what has been sung and what is going to be explored today in the sermon. And some of us have come into this environment believing that this is the moment or this is the, the section of our week where we draw near to God. Sometimes we have these things which is like, oh, it's, I've got to have that encounter type moment. I've got to have the rush. I've got to have the shot in the arm. I've got to have the vitamin pill. I've got whatever, however we think about it. That spirit encounter, whatever it is. We, we call that drawing near sometimes. Or we conclude that drawing near means in some way or another, simply try harder. Pray harder. Like, how does that even look? You know? Read the Bible more. Get some more in there. I'm not doing enough. I've got to, I've got to get, I've got to have, I've, I've, I don't know. I, I, I was put under pressure as a teenager. My, my youth leader said, Cam, you should read 10 chapters of the Bible every day. 13 with ADHD. <laughs> we only had the King James. There's a lot of thieves and thous to cover. But I thought I was drawing near by going through that sort of motion every day of my life. Got through the Bible awfully fast, but my goodness, how much did I retain? Sometimes we, we feel compelled to do something greater to give the impression that we're more attentive, even if it's just for a short time. In doing this, we reduce our faith expression to nothing more than a series of encounters and doing rather than having an ongoing posture, posture and a sense of being. What do you do if you haven't had a 30-minute prayer meeting every in the morning? Is that it? Oh, me and God are going to be distant for the rest of the day? No, no, no. Something deeper is being spoken of here. In Hebrews, drawing near is not encounter-based. It's a constant way of life. It's an understanding of the position we hold, an understanding of the proximity that we have to the Father and living that out every day. Instead of being more deliberate or feeling a rush in a moment, and calling it drawing near, our author describes it as the ongoing state we live in because of what Jesus has done. Trusting His work every day on the cross, understanding our sinfulness, but also understanding His grace, and clinging to that every day of our life, that is drawing near. Relating to Jesus in our everyday prayer life, just even as we're just driving along. I've heard notable preachers talking about how they don't always have that sit down and just have these conversations with God for an hour every day sort of lives, but they do engage with the Lord every day. Some notable Baptist speakers in Australia have, 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 have spoken that out at times. Some notable other ministers that, I, that have been admired in times past. I won't name them, I don't want to embarrass them. Being faithful and persevering every day is the posture of drawing near. At all times in our general faith expression, when we make the most of what Jesus has done for us, this is what the author of Hebrews would describe as drawing near. This is the sort of life we're called to live. It's understanding who we are in the Lord every day. And living in that. Let us draw near. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. You ever driven somewhere and been hampered by a fellow motorist who just didn't know how to drive in a straight line? We have one this week, watch the. SUV just pulled right out in front and just sit at 25 kilometres an hour down the Jubilee Highway. It was, it, was, it was dangerous. I was driving in the northern suburbs of Perth years ago. We are coming back from a, a, a youth camp and, and I, had a, I was driving a 12 seat high ace and you know, we got a busload of kids. And we're following this car doing, you know, it's a, it's a you know, 70 zone and this station wagon in front of us. Just could not drive on a straight line. And when I say could a straight line, we're talking about hitting gutters. Seriously. And it's it's middle of the morning. We're hoping that they're doing okay. But then I saw a gap and I'm like, I'm down a gear and I've gunned it. I've gone around it. I just just want to get that dangerous thing out of my sights. Go around it. Just as I get past that dangerous driver, I realise I was in there. Sights of a radar. <laughs> Get pulled over, a bit of explanation. They actually let me go. Uh, all the guys in the bus are going, no, nah, see that thing just going past now? Stop him! <laughs> There's something really unnerving, watching someone be really unsteady or wobbly on the road. The author of Hebrews is literally telling the church to stop getting all wobbly here in their faith, in their walk. Start walking in a straight line a bit. Stop getting all... Stop hitting the gutters. Stop getting wobbly with your faith. Stop walking out faith in such a way that you may just fall over at any moment. Either stick some training wheels on, get some support somehow, get into a bit of accountability if you need to, or be a little bit more more diligent keeping your balance as you navigate your faith. Let us hold unswervingly. Now, this is a church that's being addressed that is probably swerving a bit. It's clearly concerning our pastor here that we don't know the name of. As a church is looking awfully wobbly. And he's gone, no, no, no. We have a faith that we that it's it's solid. It's safe. It's got everything we need. Don't wobble with a faith like that. And third, let us meet and spur. if you have little clue about Christ, you'll actually begin to miss what matters to him. And his new covenant people most certainly matters to Jesus. If you have little clue about Christ, you'll drift. And if you're drifting, then meeting together stops being a priority. For many reasons, there were members of the congregation here who were no longer gathering together. We'll read shortly that both persecution as well as apathy and unbelief will be some of those reasons. And yet, the writer calls the church out for this in a big way. They explain that it's there that we are reminded of what it means to follow Jesus and draw strength. what we're called to do. There is actually strength in numbers and there is strength to be gotten in these gatherings. In the gathering times we are spurred on. In the gathering times we are both motivated and instructed in love and good works. That is a broad term for all the good things a Christian can do. We often debate the merits of being a Christian who doesn't belong to a church, and I've met many, including this morning. Look, in theory, salvation is something Jesus makes possible for us at an individual level. So, this can work to a degree, but nobody in the New Testament did this. Because Christianity, by its very design, is a movement, a community, a team sport. If you don't believe in the local church, your faith will wobble. And you will be constantly the victim of an unhealthy subjectivity. In that you'll view the strength of your faith and the doctrines you hold to and the motivations of your ministry through the lens of self and your own needs rather than somebody casting an accountable eye over that. Instead, we are correctly spurred when we gather. We are correctly motivated and instructed when we gather. There's value in the accountable community that Jesus created and laid his life down for. So, persecution or not, apathy or not, like it or not, we're not to let the habit of gathering get away from us. We can't let not gathering become a habit in our life. We need each other. I need you. You need somebody here and they need you. Something the Spirit does in our midst when we gather, when we're in community together, far, far outweighs anything we can do in our way. Let's get into the rest of the chapter. We've got both a warning and an encouragement here. So let's do the hard one first. Let's rip the band-aid off and get into verse Verse 26. And who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hmm. We've addressed this briefly um, to a degree earlier because the writer has sort of talked about this element of falling away before um, in, in chapter 6 mentioned twice in one letter, which is actually quite interesting. In both instances, the author has spoken of people who have clearly come to a place of faith, but are now no longer pursuing this anymore and walking deliberately away. The wording in both instances indicates that they've lost their salvation as a result. It appears in here, as well as what Jesus said in some spots, that you can actually have a significant encounter with him. An encounter that you and I would rightly call salvation. And then at the end, miss it all through one means or another. Paul wrote in his own testimony about persecuting believers to the point that they would completely renounce their faith. Perhaps this is taking place in this congregation also. The persecution might have gotten that nasty at some point. Jesus spoke about people who exhibited spiritual gifts in his name, who still came up short at judgment. There is evidence of complete apostasy making its presence felt throughout many of the epistles. Maybe that's a risk going on here too. Since the last time I grappled with this idea when we were in chapter 6, I've actually had some engaging conversations with a number of us here. There's a number of ways we are trying to work this out across the room and I respect that and I I actually love the fact that we all have the freedom to do that and to, to come to our convictions on that. I personally believe that Christians are eternally secure as believers because of the work of Christ. And Hebrews offers us phrases to indicate this. You might recall the image of the tightrope last time. Well, we sometimes describe faith like walking a fine line. You know, I'm on the tightrope. Saved is dead ahead. Backsliding is one millimetre either side of it. And I'm just lost forever if if that ever happens. I don't quite believe that. But there is evidence in Scripture, history and current life that some believers will stop believing and stop following. Some will suggest that perhaps these people weren't saved in the first place. (laughs) Or not predestined as some might say, I don't know. But I worry we might be a bit too subjective with that. Given the apparent depth of expression that's in play before they fall, that's seen in Scripture. People who have tasted the heavenly gift, people who have engaged with the Spirit, people who have prophesied, people who have, who have, who have done significant things in the name of Jesus, still getting to a point where they would fall away. What we can see in this passage is this, that if we decide we love our sin more than we love Jesus, we're going to find ourselves falling short in the end. Jesus will judge us for that if we decide any of our humanistic solutions for salvation have more merit than the work of Jesus, if we're looking everywhere else except the cross for our salvation, then we're going to be judged for that in the end. If we live in this idea that the new covenant means no standard or no power and we can do what we think or what we want, we'll find out otherwise in the end. If we live like we believe, there won't be a day of reckoning with a perfect holy judge and creator. We'll be exposed for our folly in a really big way. I saw a picture on Facebook once, you know, that this idea that only God can judge me. Given what we just read in Hebrews, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Only God can judge me. Do not ever make that a throwaway line. That should be the full gravity of that idea, should hit us hard. If we reject Jesus or if we renounce him, however that idea comes to be, whether there's some extreme in faith, whether it's as easy as some people suggest, even the verse says there's no sacrifice of sins left. Why? Because Jesus is once for all. You were saved once for all. And there's no other place where sacrifice of sin exists other than the cross. If we're looking elsewhere, you won't find it. And there is going to be a day where we face our judge. That's a big warning for us here. There's a lot of preachers falling over themselves to downplay judgment. And hell and reduce sin to the word boo boo. But the author sounds an ominous warning here falling into the hands of the living God. Something to really understand the gravity of. And in fact, we're told here that because of Jesus, we're held to a greater account than the old way. The Mosaic law was a shadow of what was to come, right? Just a shadow yet it contained capital crimes when properly tried. What makes us think the complete one comes without an element of being judged on it also? Some of us have a hard time of how does God deal with bad people (laughs) like that? How can a loving God put people into a place like hell or... Object to judgment in that sort of way. And Tom Wright puts a great verse, a great, a great thought into this. And he's a quite moderate poetic voice, but this was pretty stern from him. Let me just quote it for you. If there is no place in God's world of justice and mercy for someone who has systematically ordered their life so as to become an embodiment of injustice and malice, then there must come a point where unless god is going to declare that human choices were just a game and don't matter there must be a point where god endorses the choices that his human creatures have made when we think about how god operates what the future to be is going to what the future to come is going to be sin cannot stand in that space and if we want to pursue that, in the, new, in the new kingdom is not going to make space for that. That's the ominous warning out of the way. Chapter 6 tells us the author doesn't consider their audience there yet, but for still for some reason feels compelled to fire the warning shot. But then we're immediately followed up with an encouragement and we're going to finish with this. Verse 32. Oops, what's that doing there? Remember those days earlier, after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. will live by faith and I will take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. That's how the chapter ends. This congregation apparently went through the ringer at some point in their early years. They clearly went through stuff that you and I don't just, just don't understand. Although some people around the world right now do continue to resonate with this message. There was suffering and conflict. At very least, entire families and communities were turning on these new believers as they navigated their early steps of following Jesus. There were times of public ridicule. Not just nudging in the workplace, not just a bit of lunchroom banter, but ridicule. Times have been made an example of. Times of imprisonment, times where property was ceased. Why? If, they, if you're citizens of this kingdom, you're not citizens of this one, we'll take your gear. And in the face of that stuff, they apparently stood really strong. They are being commended here for having endurance and having a sense of strong identification with others who are going through this stuff. They consider themselves as being in this thing together. When you're in community, we are in this together and even in persecution, they stand strong arm in arm. Their outlook on the big picture was exactly where they needed to be. They had a precise view of eternity that all believers are to hold. A view that in faith the promises of the kingdom of God far outweigh the present we live in. But this fervour isn't quite there now. If they won't meet together, you can pretty much guarantee that they won't be suffering or enduring persecution or hardship together either. So the author challenges them to get back to that point. And he takes them back to what they have in Christ as they do that. He comes back to that word confidence. The same word being used to describe their status with God. Because of who you are, because of the confidence you have in in Him, because of Him and with Him. Live out that confidence here and now. Their confidence in Christ was permission to speak freely and present plainly in God's most holy place and out of that position do the same thing on earth. Speak freely and present plainly despite the persecution that comes. Not because they campaigned for it or joined you know, the cause of trying to get it out of Parliament. But because they already had it where it counts. In God's presence. And let's remember in their context, the government wasn't ever going to budge for them on the issue. And yet believers were called to speak with plainness and boldness in the face of very clear persecution. This idea gets gets clearer again when we see the verse that he's quoted to make their point. It's actually from Habakkuk. And this verse is actually quoted a few times in the New Testament, which indicates that it had a bit of airplay around the uh, New Testament church, the first century church. Paul uses it twice. Habakkuk was operating as a prophet in Judah when Babylon was fast approaching their doorstep. He could probably see the dust cloud of their approaching charge from his balcony, if you know what I mean. He knew it was happening really swiftly. But much of what he spoke about was actually pointing to Babylon's eventual demise. When we fast forward 660 years or so, we see Peter in his first letter sending greetings from the churches in Babylon. Where was he when he wrote that? Not in Iraq. He was in Rome. The early church saw the persecution and attempts to suppress and assimilate God's people in Babylon very similarly, almost like an analogy for what Rome was doing worldwide to the church. So, verses like what we see in Habakkuk 2 were sources of inspiration to them. When Babylon invades, remember that her demise will come at the hand of God and that the righteous ones who live by and are justified by faith will be saved even as that demise happens. That analogy of Babylon has its tentacles in today's world also. When we read Bible sections like Revelation, it's helpful to remi- remember that Babylon had an expression in Rome, and it helps us unlock some of the mysteries of the time, but it's still there now. Babylon is the powers that persecute and seek to assimilate God's people into the ways of the pagans. It's the powers that try to shape us into the image of the world again, socially, culturally, theologically and make the church, and make the things of the Lord subject to the things of the world. But because of who we are in Christ, we have all the power and permission we need to speak freely in confidence in the face of all that. In fact, the church, okay, the church being written to here, I'm going to go as far as to suggest they're not anchored and they're not gathering and they're not getting all the full benefits of this faith that they should be living out because they've done enough not to be persecuted. Instead of taking the path of least resistance, The author closes this section with a major rallying statement. Let me remind you of it again. We don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we belong to those who have faith and are saved. This is who we are. We're confident believers in Jesus. We have the full attention of our great high priest who has given us full access to the Father through his blood. We are saved by faith. We have every reason to be confident, not because of what we bring to the table, but everything Jesus did. And we're being changed through the Spirit day by day, both as a person and as a community. And if I can get all Australian, we're like kangaroos and emus. We have a makeup that just doesn't know how to move backwards. Steadfastness, perseverance those are the traits of the church. We are not the ones who shrink back, we're the ones who keep moving, we're the ones who stand strong. We're thriving and doing great things for the kingdom of heaven, even when Babylon does its worst. So as we round out this section, instead of apathetically drifting, instead of seeking pathways of least resistance, instead of seeking out creative ways of avoiding community, instead of caving to the smallest lunchroom joke at the expense of our faith, Let us be a steadfast and confident people. Let's remember who we are and live in the posture of who we are. Let's not reduce our faith to encounter-based moments, but a day-to-day living out of who we are in the Lord. In light of all that we are, live under that banner of therefore. In light of all that we have, in light of of what we've become in him. Be steadfast and confident because of who we are in Christ. Let's stop there and let's pray.